Well, last time I talked to the people from downtown. What was the last movie you went to? Miguel, what's new? Miguel, what's new in the community? Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed? First of all, for the people who contact us on Twitter. About a certain research. Can you tell me more? Well, depends who you talk if you talk to the people from the board. Why did the yogurt go to the art museum? Welcome to another episode of the Community Board Podcast with your host, Miguel Valdez. And today, I have a special guest all the way from the windy city of Chicago, Marla Clayman. How are you doing, Marla? I'm doing well. Thank you, Miguel. How are you? Good, good. So, today, we're going to be talking about something that everybody does. Everybody takes decisions every day. We take decisions from the moment we get out of bed. Yes. Should I drink my coffee? Should I wash my mouth first? Should I check my phone? So we make decisions for everything since probably we're capable or our parents let us. Right, right. So decision, decision making. And um, just I want to share something personal with you that is happening at this moment in my life. So regarding decisions. We're about to deciding to purchase a, a car. So is decision making. Yes. I want a two door car, five speed. My wife wants us a car, a vehicle with third road. So we can bring yes. grandma, we can bring the kids, the she dogs, wants a, car seats. She wants a practical car and you want a fun car. Exactly. Yes. And then guess what? Once we decide our decision then you go to the lot, and then the salesman influence you and your decision making on, oh, you should get this model. Oh, no, you should try this one. And, oh, don't worry about the financial. We can do this. Right. But you have um, you been part of this study, or you, you want to share with our listeners what are we you're going to be presenting, or what do you present today? And I was fortunate to to be at your presentation. Oh, thank you. So in general, I'm really interested in how patients and doctors and patients make decisions related to healthcare. So I don't spend a lot of time talking about cars and decisions, <laughs> but I spend a lot of time thinking about how, uh, what sort of information patients need and who else they want to have involved in their decisions. And then also how doctors are trained to talk to patients about those things. And, well, once we, patients are in, in, the, in the office or the consult room, it's hard because sometimes there's caregivers also who are at that moment. Mm-hmm. And if, if they're under stress for any condition, obviously they'll be seeing the doctor. How would that influence their thoughts for deciding what is the best treatment or procedure or what what the research says. So the research says that having a family member there, for example, so whether that's an adult child of an older person or whether that's a, a spouse, a husband or a wife, 
that there's a lot of different things that those people can do. So they can be somebody who can take notes. They can be somebody who can help remind the patient of what it is that they wanted to talk about because they might have had a conversation about it before they ever got there. Um, they also sometimes sort of serve like a, almost like a translator that if the, like if I say something and it becomes clear that the doctor doesn't really know what I'm trying to get at, that this other person who can see what it is that I mean can say to the doctor, well, what I think that Marla means is this kind of thing over here. And so they can have these, these rules that can actually be really helpful to the patients. But when we talk about like doctor-patient relationships and things like that, we don't always remember that that's so important to family to family members too. And we don't always think about the fact that there often are family members or other people that sometimes I call decision partners who can be there and who help patients do things like look things up online or help them think through what the important things are for them that they would want to talk about or that they would want to have be part of a decision. Also, one one thing that you mentioned uh, that I like a lot is when it comes down to persuading versus informing. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? How is, describe it to me. What is- well, right. So persuading would be something like, this is the thing that you should do, and I'm going to like sort of like advertising, right? Like you were saying with the salesman, mm-hmm. he's trying to sort of sell somebody on, well, you should do this thing because I think that this is the, the thing you should do. And informing somebody is really about saying, well, here's something that you could do. There might be one or two other things you could also do, but you should also know that even though they might be really good in these ways, they might have these benefits for you, they might also have these risks, There might be things about it that wouldn't be as good. You might have a side effect, or maybe one medication is more expensive than another one. Uh, And so to the extent that you can have that sort of a conversation ahead of time can help people think through what are the important things. So one other example might be something like maybe you would have one medicine that you could take um, every day, one time a day, and maybe another one that works just as well might be three times a day. And the one that's three times a day is cheaper, but obviously it might be harder to remember to take mm. it as often. So depending on how much how much the difference is in price and how important it is to you and whether or not you have enough room in your budget, you might make a different decision about one medication versus another. That's just one kind of example. And in these days when the doctors the doctor visits are so fast, mm-hmm. 20 minutes. And sometimes also there has been studies that the way the doctor is looking at the computer mm-hmm. versus doing the eye contact right. with the patient or the caregivers. Um, how, how um, uh, also you mentioned that sometimes the providers forget to ask uh, or, or the patient forget to say, oh, by the way, uh, that pill that the mm-hmm. I'm taking is also affecting me in this way. It is normal, you right? Know? Right. So that right. So one of the things I was talking about that I think is what you're talking about mm-hmm. is that sometimes, like maybe some my doctor told me to, that I needed to take a medicine, and I go and I get it and I start to take it, and then I have some sort of side effect, mm-hmm. and so I stop. And 
what's really hard is that even though we have things like telephones and we often now have things like electronic health records or patient portals where I should as a patient be able to send some sort of message to my doctor that says, hey, you probably want to know that I can't take this medicine anymore because of, because of the side effect. So, and then, but what happens is that even though we have the technology, we don't really have a system in place and we don't let both patients and providers really know, like, hey, that's okay. Like, it, because what happens is if maybe the next time I go to the doctor, the doctor says, oh, how's that medicine going for you? Mm-hmm. And I say, oh, well, I stopped taking it two months ago. So then you're having a conversation that you probably could have had by email or on the phone with a nurse or something else where you could say, oh, that medicine didn't work. Maybe we can try another one. And then maybe that one would have worked for you in that amount of time between your doctor's visits. We don't do a great job as a system of making use of that time between doctor's visits, even though we have more and more technology that theoretically should make that a little bit easier. Yeah, and also another number that you shared was that there is around 900 million ambulatory visits. That means just doctor visits? Yes, right, like outpatient visits That's a lot every year. of visits. And yes. then everything happened in and out. In, in and, and out. out. In and out. Right. Well, and it's not just that it's in and out. Like for patients, we feel like it was so fast. And for doctors and for nurse practitioners and they feel like they're being asked to do more and more and more stuff. Mm-hmm. So every time that there's a new guideline or that there's a new medicine, that there's just, you know, even things like the fact that there is the computer, you know, 20 years ago, they didn't all have computers in their offices. So we're asking them to do more stuff and to, you know, to check off more check boxes and things like that. So it also makes their job harder in ways that they don't really have control over and that makes it for some people really hard to do their jobs well. Yeah, and you also share there is communities or cultures or groups that they don't question the doctor because they trust there is that big trust on and also you mentioned their stories that people say yeah, they trust the most obviously the the doctor. Mm-hmm. Because they don't question sometimes their approach or or the prescription that they recommend or... Right. So I think that with that, there's, there's a couple of points that I think are really important. One is that you know, people are still individuals. So even if somebody comes from a culture where that might not be the norm to question the doctor, it doesn't mean that that individual feels that way. That individual might still feel like, hey, I, I want to know what's going on and I want to understand why you're recommending this and I want to tell you I disagree. But the other part of it is that just because if somebody comes from a culture or a place or even if it's not a culture, maybe even just the doctor they used to go to, who doesn't um, – where, where that wasn't allowed for them to really question the doctor, then they may not even know that that's something they can do. So also just letting people know that that's something that's okay because that's – what you don't want to have is for somebody to say, okay, here I am, and I am really ready to ask all my questions and do the things that I'm ready to do, and then for a doctor or a nurse to say to them, no, no, you can't. That That's not yeah. okay. Yeah, and also you share that within 15 or 25 seconds, doctors interrupt. Yeah, so there have been a lot of studies that have shown that when 
when you have that first part of a visit, the agenda setting, which is where like the doctor will say, so what brings you in today? And then the person starts talking that on average that they're interrupted within half a minute. And so they don't get, the patient doesn't get a chance to even say, here's what it is that I'm here for. It's present, yeah. And so this kind of studies, when that happens, it's observatory. Somebody's, either it's a camera in, a, in right. the doctor's office, and they see the interaction between right. doctor and patient, correct? Right. So sometimes it's video, and sometimes it's audio, like, Mm-hmm. Like this, where it's just the, uh, you can just hear them. I think it's really important for people to know that when we do those kinds of studies, that everybody knows that they're being audio recorded. Okay. It's not yeah. a secret. Yeah. Uh, and it's not some sort they of. consent. Yeah. yeah people have been consented. Uh, and so patients agree that their, that their visit is going to be recorded. And the doctors or nurses uh, agree that, that if their patients agree to be in the study, that they can also be recorded. So, and uh, a big part of your presentation was about um, what is shared decision-making. Can you share with the audience what is this? Sure. So shared decision-making is this idea that the best decision or the best thing to do for a patient, sometimes that it depends on the patient's preferences and values and the things that they want. And so especially if you have something where you might be, there might be two or three different things you could do and that they're medically equivalent, that it's really important that you know what matters most to patients. And one of the examples that I gave is I talked about if you have a pet. Mm -hmm. And if you have a pet and you have somebody in the house who's allergic to the pet and maybe they have asthma and their asthma is worse because of the pet, that... You know, we understand that, you know, the absolutely medically, the absolute best thing to do is to have the pet not be in the house and to give the pet away. But we also know that there are other reasons people have pets. And so so just because medically that it was the best thing, that doesn't mean that's the best thing for that patient or for that family. And so what can we do to find out about what other options are and what are we sort of willing to do and willing to to make those concessions where the person who's allergic is still healthy, but the pet still gets to stay in the house. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of other types of examples of that where there might be circumstances in someone's life where they, they can't or don't want to do what might be what's considered medically the best thing, but that doesn't mean that they can't do anything to help improve their health. You also share... When is a good idea to use it and when not? When is not good? Right. So I'm a little biased there. I think that almost everything, unless there's really like a life-threatening emergency, I think almost everything, there's room for shared decision-making because people want to know, and I feel like have the right to know, what it is that is going to happen to them. And they have a right to say, even if it's even if the decision they come to is not what a medical person would say is the best decision, if they really understand what the risks are to them and they're willing to take those risks, then that's okay. And so it, the decision, when we talk about shared decision-making, it doesn't mean that at the end everybody absolutely agrees. 
It means that we've had a conversation. You saw the options. Right. Of here's all the options, and here is me, the patient, saying, here are the things that matter to me, and here's the clinician saying, here is what I think is probably what I would do that for that I think you should do, given all these things I know about you. And so the doctor can make that recommendation, but it's still up to the patient to say whether or not that's a recommendation that they feel like they can live with. Or even try it, and if it doesn't try right. I mean, if it doesn't work. Right, and I think that's know. really important, which is that there's a lot of decisions that we can revisit. So maybe I go on a medication for something like high blood pressure, and... And I go on one, and I have a side effect. It doesn't mean that I have to be on this medication for the rest of my life or nothing. There might be another medication. Maybe I can try a lower dose of the medication and see if I can commit to doing more exercise or something else that might also help lower my blood pressure. So we can come back to not all decisions, but there's a lot of decisions we can come back to. And that if we can have that sort of discussion up front of what is it that is most important to me that that might either keep me from doing this particular option or that is why I want to be able to do this option. Sort of what are those barriers and what are those facilitators? And when in places where they use the shared decision-making tools, mm-hmm. they, it, they have visuals, right, sometimes? That Absolutely. That Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a lot of – there's different types of decision-making tools. Some of them are – the kinds of things that somebody might look at before a doctor visit or oh. after by themselves. And so when we talk about a decision-making tool, it's not something that says, like, you have to do this. It's something that says, okay, here are the options, and here are the things you might want to know. So a good example for would be something like um, birth control, right? There's lots of different options that women would have around birth control, And you would want to look at something like how expensive is it and how often does she have to redo something like with a pill that she has to take every day or a shot that she can do every three months and is it invasive and all of these kinds of things. And is it, you know, is it reversible? Mm -hmm. Right. So there's so there's a lot of different preferences that people have and those different options also have different failure rates. Right. So if you say, I don't want to have a baby right now, but if I got pregnant, it would be okay, then maybe you would be willing to try to have an option that has a higher failure rate than somebody else who says. But with lower symptoms. But with lower symptoms. Right. So or that is easier to start or stop or there might be other things going on in your life that you could have that discussion about. And so. So there are, I bring that up as an example because there are some good examples of decision tools that lay out those different things for contraception. So so you could have something like that, and you could have something that would be for a patient to look at by themselves, but you could also have ones that are really for patients and clinicians to look at together. Uh, and And when you asked about whether or not it's visual, often yes, because when we talk about things like risks or how often something can happen, like how often do we expect a side effect, it's much easier for us to understand uh, if we see a visual representation of that. So, for example, if I say to you, five out of every hundred people have this side effect, okay, 
But if I have a visual representation where I have, and we most people I think have seen things like this, where they have a hundred little stick figures, yeah. and then five of them might have a different color, and you can say that's the that's what it looks like for that's five out of a hundred, and you say, oh, well, that makes a lot more sense. And so when we have those visual um, examples, then we can then it makes it a little easier for people also to compare the risks or the benefits of different things because they can say, oh, if I do option A, these are the risks and benefits in 100 people or 1,000 people. And if I do option B, here's the likelihood of those same risks and benefits for, you know, for the same thing. And you said that also you mentioned the, the pediatric departments. Mm -hmm. They are really good at... Uh, doing that. Yeah I, yeah, I think generally we are pretty good at that uh, for pediatrics because... And pediatrics is the area where kids are seen. For kids. And I think the reason that pediatricians and people who see kids generally are pretty good at this is because when somebody is taking care of a kid, there has to be a family involved. And so, uh, and so what that means is that Uh, we understand as a society that when somebody makes a decision that is for a child or with a child, like let's say that the kid is 14 or 15, that the kid doesn't have complete control over their own environment. And so the parents might be involved and the siblings might be involved. And so if we take that example again of the kid with the allergy and the asthma, It's not just the kid who is affected if we have if we say, well, we should get rid of the pet. It's everybody else who lives in that house. And it's also about the relationships. I mean, what are the other kids in the house going to feel toward the kid who has the allergy if, if that kid is the reason that they can't have the pet anymore? And so that's something where in pediatrics, when we talk about kids, that those doctors and nurses are always always talking about and with families. When we talk about adults, sometimes it's a little, we, we are a little less kind, I think, to adults about where we feel like adults should just make what people think of as the right choice, whatever that right choice is. So if I'm an adult and I have asthma and I'm allergic to the cat, there might be somebody who would say, well, Just get rid of the cat. What's wrong with you? Yeah. And I might say, but I don't want to, right? I love yeah. my cat, or I get these other benefits from having my cat. And that that might be something where I would want to try a lot of different things first, uh, because obviously I also want to be healthy, but there might be other things that are more important to me than, than doing it what would be medically the best way and in some ways is the easiest way. And how often shared decision-making is used in the, in the field, That's in a, the industry, at least right, in the United States? Right. That's a really good, hard question. So when we look at things like patient reports of these things, or we look at things like recordings of visits, like we were talking about before, where you have a, an audio or a video recording, it really doesn't happen that often. And part of it is, might be that sometimes when we look, we have a really strict definition of what that could look like. But also that I think a lot of times providers, providers meaning clinicians like doctors and nurses, sometimes think that they've done things that they haven't really done. Um, so they might think that they've 
asked patients to uh, to let them know if they understand. But if I just say, you know, hey, Miguel, are you with me? And you nod. Um, that's actually pretty good compared to what happens in a lot of visits. Mm-hmm. But that also doesn't really tell me if you understood what we talked about. And so, so it's it's something where I think there's a lot of room to grow. And one of the things that I talked about is that if you think of it not as something you do only with some decisions, but you think of it as a way to just provide care. Like this is how I look at the world, is I look at this as a way to, to tell you, the patient, that I have a lot of um, respect for what you can bring to the conversation, and I want you to be as involved as you want to be in making these decisions. And there is always should be, uh, you mentioned, uh, risk versus benefits for each right. decision. Absolutely. I mean, I think even things that are where we talk about them as being medically the best option, there's always risks and benefits. There is, there's nothing that is without risk. And so that doesn't mean that, that there are things that we wouldn't want to do. But I think that people need to be aware of that. And also, can you share a little bit about um, one model of the decision-making? Sure. So there's a model that we use where we talk about decision-making as sort of having three different phases or sections where you have information sharing back and forth between patients and doctors that can be, and part of that is to be able to say, um, First of all, I want you to know that there's a decision that has to be made and that then to be able to say, here are what the options are and to have that discussion about what the benefits and risks are, but also what those values are for patients. And one of the things is that sometimes when we have those values discussions, if I didn't even know that there was a decision to be made until two minutes ago, I might not have really clear values or be able to even say yet what my values are about those things. So having that kind of discussion that says... Yeah, usually when you're walking already out, you're in the parking lot and like, oh, it's just hitting you. Right, right. So you don't always know yet what your values are. And you don't even know, you may not even know yet what are the types of things that you should be thinking about in terms of what those values could be. And so so there's that part of it. Then there's this decision-making process part, which is really about making sure that, again, this sort of checking of understanding and making sure that if there are things that the patient has to do, that we take a look at, well, can I do that? Do I feel like I can do that? Like... If my doctor says to me, "Here's this medicine, and you should and you should take it every day," well, can I? Do I feel like I can? Yeah, like, and you share you share something with us the for the institution that you work in Chicago, which mm-hmm. is what is the so the American Institutes for Research, yeah. Mm-hmm. And well, one of the partners who sees oh all, access, yes. yes. So Access Community Health Network is a group of about 35 clinics that sees a lot of patients, um, about 180,000 different patients every year. And they see a lot of patients who that where they live in, these are not like big academic centers, they, they're, they're in the community. So there are clinics in like 16 of the 20 poorest communities in Chicago, Access works in those. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that sometimes if they see inpatients and they don't get to 
they the provider might recommend something and the they forget the environment with that individual lives if it's a homeless uh, right. or if it's right, the conditions they're not there for him to continue that right. treatment. A- absolutely. So the example I gave is if you have a patient who needs a medication that would need refrigeration, but the patient is homeless. Or maybe the patient lives in an apartment, but there's but they have they don't really have a working refrigerator and they don't have air conditioning. And so it can be really hot in their apartment. So what is that patient supposed to do? And if I am a provider and I don't know this and I don't ask about it, and there's no way for the patient to know until they pick up the medication, if nobody says to them, hey, this has to be refrigerated, well, then what are they supposed to do with that? And it, it can even be something that is more short-term, whether you might be able to do something faster, like maybe somebody needs an antibiotic that needs to be refrigerated, but mm-hmm. they only need it for a week. Your solution might be different than if it's something somebody's supposed to take every day for six months. Okay. Uh, where do you see, is the industry pushing towards this as a, as a policy across the... Yeah, so they, yeah, so they really are. Uh, the question really is, what's the best way to do mm-hmm. it? And you have a lot of clinical guidelines, for example, where uh, an organization will say something like, for this thing, like for this type of cancer screening, though there might be a recommendation that says that it should be an individual decision where the patient and the doctor should talk together about what the best option is. So one example of that would be colon cancer screening, that somebody could be screened using one of a couple of different types of tests. And so they might want to have a discussion about what's the best type of test for somebody based on their, on their preferences. So we see that, but what has to happen, I think, in where things are starting to move but haven't totally gotten there is really making that part of everybody's practice. And really, so that, so one of the things I talked about were a couple of different projects, including at Access, where we're training providers to, to do this and to not just do it where they have some of these decision tools that we talked about, but where they are really trained to have those conversations and also to recognize those opportunities to say, oh, I didn't really think of this before as something where I might use shared decision-making, but maybe now I see that there are more opportunities to use it than I did before. And unfortunately, there is always the cost, the monetary. How would this benefit? So... We don't yet have... If you want to sell it. Yes, if I want to sell it. So so we don't have great evidence yet that it that it saves money or that it that it reduces cost. But we have some ideas. So there is some work that where doctors think that it takes longer to do this kind of conversation. And the studies that have come out and looked at it really don't by and large say that. So it makes sense that people would think it takes longer, but as people get more skilled at it, it really doesn't seem to take longer. So that's But the satisfaction... Right. The satisfaction... uh, Well, satisfaction is a hard thing because often people say that they're satisfied unless something really, really bad happens with their doctor. So it's not as much about satisfaction as it is... um, Well, I I tried to... Sorry, let me reframe it. 
the benefit. The benefit. For the patient. Yeah, the benefit for the patient. And then one of the things that we're starting to look at, and when I say we, I mean researchers are starting to look at, is are you able to avoid, um, avoid having people come back and not have made any progress in their health? So like what I was talking about before, if I leave the appointment and I take a medication and I take it for two weeks and then I stop, but I don't go back to the doctor for two more months, then that's two months where whatever my medication was for, that, that hasn't improved at all. And so I go back and, and I don't get anywhere. And so what we're starting to look at is to say, well, are we able to treat people more effectively um, from the beginning? Because if I know that I can call the doctor and get a different medication or I tell them right away, you know what, you want me to take something and I am just not willing to do that, what else can I do to avoid taking a medication? then we can have those discussions up front and not have and and try not to you know try to have that discussion in a way that helps everybody move forward faster i have a question uh how do you get into this research field because it's not your typical lab research it's right. a different type of research it's a different type of research so I, there's there's a lot of answers to that. I think mm-hmm. when I think about it generally, I've always been interested in health. And I've also always been interested in language and how people say things to each other and how they understand them. And so when I was in school, one of the things I happened to um, have an advisor who had done a lot of work and a lot of the early work just about doctor-patient communication in general. And so I was really lucky to be able to work with her. But I also wanted to look at this idea of not just how were people talking, but sort of what the, the impact was on their trajectory or their path for what they were going to do next. And so that's part of how I got into it. So I started out uh, in school looking at these interactions where I would have audio recordings or video recordings. And in fact, also when we talked about family members, my my dissertation, my, my graduate school work was about the roles of family members in primary care visits for older people because there were what had been written at the time was really written from this perspective of people saying what they thought happened but they hadn't actually looked at the at the actual conversations yet and there was a lot of people talking about how much trouble it was to have family members there and and I kept reading this and thinking who who mentioned that the provider it was, it was doctors the, yeah oh. so a lot in the medical literature it was talking about how difficult it was and so and I thought well if it's so difficult why does everybody do it right when they're sick why does everybody have someone come with them and so it see, so it turned out that really a lot of that sort of that work that was like in theory wasn't really borne out by what was at least in the the stuff I looked at like the actual videos um, certainly you had sometimes where there might be conflict or or somebody might do something inappropriate but mostly it was really helpful it was that like 
you know, if the doctor said something that the patient didn't understand, then that family member or decision partner could say, oh, I think what they really mean is this and, uh, and the other way also, like I talked about before. And th- there would be sort of somebody else who could, who could fill in information and say, you know, here's why, here's why we want, you know, why we're here and what we want to get out of this. Yeah. I think I heard in another presentation also how important it is, like you mentioned, to communicate and also as a patient to repeat the instructions mm-hmm. back to the doctor. Right. Because so, sometimes uh, people just move their heads. Uh, they understood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are we good? And the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But because sometimes that figure of the doctor, you don't want to make him feel like, oh, I understood what he told me. Right. And sometimes you think you understand and then you yeah. leave and somebody says, oh, what did the doctor tell you to do? And you go, oh, I, I thought yeah. I knew, but now I don't. After three times. Oh, it was before eating or after eating. Right. All those kind. And sometimes sometimes doctors are taught to use something that that is called teach back where they'll specifically do that. Like they'll say, okay, why don't you tell me what you understood from what I just said about how you're going to do this. And that can also be really, really helpful because it can highlight for both the doctor and the patient what the person understood and where they might need something to be repeated again. And sometimes having something like a written instruction or a picture or something like that can also be really helpful. And you also mentioned that in some countries, in this case, Norway mm-hmm. and Germany, Germany. They're, they're moving towards the policy to implement this for their system. Yeah. So it's for me, it's really exciting. So in Norway, a couple of years ago, they passed a law that said that everybody has the right to be as involved as they want to be in their decisions. And what that means is not that someone is going to like sue their doctor every time they they're not as involved but what it means is that the expectation is that the hospitals and the doctors offices and the medical schools are really going to train doctors and nurses in how to do this those interactions mm-hmm. and how to have these kinds of conversations and that they're going to expect that that the norm will be that patients are going to be involved and that they're going to have to ask somebody do you want to basically how you know how much control do you want to have over these decisions or do you want somebody to help help you with it because even the the way that somebody might feel about making a decision might be very different if it's like a life or death decision or if it's an everyday decision they might feel different if they feel really sick that day or they're in a lot of pain they may not want as much control over the decision as they would in another day. So having the expectation that you have to actually find out from somebody how much do you want to be involved in this is really important. Marla, thank you so much for your presentation and agreeing to do this conversation. I have one more question for you since you're from Chicago. Yes. If somebody's visiting Chicago during this summer, it's summertime, and it's their first time, Give me three top things they must do according to Marla. Okay, the three top things that somebody should do in Chicago according to Marla. Or to try. Or to try. So they should absolutely go to Millennium Park and Maggie Daly Park, which are downtown, right on the lake, 
And so it's it's be- free. It's free. It's beautiful. It's fun. There's this great fountain where the the water in it is actually very very shallow. So people come from all over to play in the fountain and to get cool. And my husband says it's his favorite part of the city because you see everybody from everywhere. So that's a great thing to do. That's free. Okay. If there are any street festivals. Because in the summer in Chicago, people like to take advantage of every minute outside. So if there are any street festivals in any neighborhood... There is always something going on. There's always something going on. So that would be two. And the third, I would say probably go to the beach. The beaches in Chicago are are also free. And Lake Michigan is huge and gigantic, and it's a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you again. And I want to invite everybody to... We're going to be sharing Marla's contact here on the information of this episode. And I want to invite everybody to follow us on Facebook on their community board, on Twitter also on their community board, and you can find and share more episodes on, the, on iTunes on their community board podcast and also on SoundCloud. All right, let's go enjoy the sun. Thank you, Miguel. Bye-bye. Well, last time I talked to the people from downtown. What was the last movie you went to? Miguel, what's new Miguel, what's new in the community? Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed? First of all, for the people who contact us on Twitter. About a certain research. Can you tell me more? Well, depends who you talk, if you talk to the people from the board. Why did the yogurt go to the art museum? Did you see in the news? To get more culture.